Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. It's great to have your company. A very special shout out to my new Patreon sponsors this week. Thanks to Ed and Bernie and Chris. You can sponsor the podcast to keep it going and to keep it free and ad free. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. Thanks for all your kind words after last week's episode with Jen Wills. Jen's infectious laugh and those amazing stories. It was pure joy. And speaking of pure joy, you're going to love this week's episode. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago or the Way of St. James. The Camino is a series of pilgrimages across Europe, all up. There are around 80,000 kilometres of Caminos. And to walk them all, if you walked, I don't know, 25 k's a day, having a day off here and there, it would take you 10 years walking all year round. I kind of like the idea of it. A pilgrimage is an opportunity for renewal. I bought a newspaper for the first time in years this week. My motivation was perhaps less spiritual or inventive. I wanted a form guide for a horse race meeting on the weekend. But in my defence, I did read the paper as well. To my surprise and delight, there was an article on pilgrimage. It was part of a series in the Sydney Morning Herald called The Art Of. This week was The Art Of Pilgrimage. I'd never thought of pilgrimage as an art, but now I do and I love it. The author Brian Johnston wrote, If you head off on a holiday in a pilgrim frame of mind, you'll see a different side to sometimes stereotyped destinations. The benefits have to be earned. Of course, that's the point of pilgrimage. Sacrifice material comfort. Heave yourself up a mountain or plunge into a frigid river. You'll learn that the most satisfying travel requires not big spending, but effort. What you'll realise is that all travel is pilgrimage of sorts. All travellers go on ritualised journeys in the hope of renewing themselves. We temporarily renounce our working lives, participate in collective experiences and celebrate our shared human history and culture. People make pilgrimages to see the Mona Lisa, eat in the world's best restaurants, visit celebrity tombs or commune with gods. Does any of it make them better people? Only as pilgrims will tell you if you travel with the right attitude and count your blessings. How good is that? I was laid up this week and had one of those rare opportunities to read a book from start to finish without putting it down. It was William Boyd's Any Human Heart. It's all about love and laughter and pain and torment, tears, successes and failures. And I thought, hmm, this is like a pilgrimage. <laughs> it features Spain and the Civil War, Hemingway, and Barcelona, Seville, Madrid. And it just took me back to the perfect place for this week's episode. As Brian Johnston wrote in the Herald at the weekend, travel with the right attitude and count your blessings. My guest this week is one of the world's most prolific and trusted pilgrimage guidebook authors. Sanford or Sandy Brown is a long-distance walker and also an ordained minister from Seattle, Washington. I saw Sandy's profile on Instagram this week and his smiling, happy pilgrim face just lit up my feed. I decided I had to reach out. He's on the line. Welcome, pilgrim. Thank you, Dan. Nice to be here. Let's start where our conversation started. I invited you onto the podcast and you said, yes, Dan, but be mindful I have motor neurone disease and it affects my voice. Tell us about that pilgrimage, the MND Camino. Thank you, Dan. And it's really nice to 
uh, see your face. I've heard a lot about you, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me. About five years ago, I started to notice some changes in my voice. And I went to the doctor, and the doctor wasn't quite able to hear it, but kind of trusted me that there were issues, wrote it down. And then uh, about a year later, the uh, the speaking issues had increased. And so they did some MRIs and some blood tests and nerve tests. And about two years ago, I was diagnosed with bulbar onset upper motor neuron disease. And for those who are not familiar with the term MND, motor neuron disease, in the U.S. it's called ALS, and upper motor neuron is called PLS. So it so far has affected only my speech. And um, I tell you, I have really discovered how important speech is to a person. And so I really appreciate um, the fact that for 60 years, I had a great voice. And I'm in the grieving process and the adjustment process now of how to deal with my new voice. It's never quite the same. I don't know what I'll get when I open my mouth. And uh, so this is it today. And uh, I appreciate your willing to make accommodations for me. And also, I want to say, I understand you've had some voice issues also. And so you're on the pilgrimage too. So I hope it's going well for you. You sound great. And I hope your singing voice is uh, on demand also. Now, you suggested we use your AI voice to conduct the interview. I think it's going to make life easier for you. So let's transition to the AI responder. Tell us how the Camino came into your life. Back around 1992, I read The Pilgrimage by Paolo Coelho. The book gave me a taste of the ordeals involved in walking a long-distance trek. It took me 16 years before I finally organized my life to do it, but it all began with a book. So what exactly was it about The Pilgrimage, the book by Paolo Coelho, way back in 1992, that rang true for you? The magical Camino story rang a bell with me, and I began to dream about walking in Spain. It wasn't the spiritualistic narrative of the book itself that drew me in. It was the place descriptions, and most of all, the idea of walking through Spain. I have Mexican ancestry from my mother's side, and in our family, we've all wondered about the connection with any potential Spanish ancestors. That formed a link. Then, as I read the book, it generated a mental movie about Spain that would keep replaying in my mind. Then I read Coel Ho's Alchemist, and that book contributed to the images as well. 
I started to envision a little stone church set under a big tree in a small valley somewhere in Spain. So first came a cluster of images, then a daydream, then a dream dream, then a goal, then finally in 2008, it became a plan. At the end of one of my jobs and before the next began, I managed six weeks of free time to walk the Camino Frances. You've since walked or biked over 14,000 kilometers on pilgrim trails in Europe and the US. Why? What keeps drawing you back? I was hooked. There are lots of things that keep me on the trail. One thing is the pilgrim lifestyle. I like living simply. It feels carefree, simply to walk all day and think only about basic needs like food, shelter, friendships. Another thing that keeps me going back is being outside all day, every day. I love watching the weather, walking in the sun or wind. I love watching simple beauty, like seeing the sunlight dance among the leaves on a tree. I love the sound of water running in a stream. I love pilgrim voices over dinner at night and the adventure of meeting new people and of communicating in a foreign country. Everything is simpler on Camino, including myself. I'm not a manager or an entrepreneur. I'm just a walker who is in a state of constant wonder as I pass the kilometers on foot. I mentioned at the top of the interview that you're an ordained minister. Tell us about your Camino, your pilgrimage with God. As a pastor, I've come to appreciate the many ways God is present in people's lives, and I enjoy hearing from them how that presence is real. On Camino, I feel like I am watching a parade of these expressions over centuries as I look at the art and architecture, as well as when I speak with modern pilgrims about spiritual matters. An underappreciated aspect of Caminos is the depth of art a pilgrim is exposed to. I always remember the advice of a music professor in college as he described how to listen to classical music. He said to always either listen for the bass instruments or the high instruments. Don't just listen to the mid-range or the melody. Following this guidance on Camino, I like to look for one thing in particular. On the Camino Frances, for example, I will look for representations of Santiago, St. James, in church art. Often churches have dozens of statues or windows or paintings, but when I look for a depiction of Santiago, I can see how the church considers the role of the pilgrim and pilgrimage and God. I think of Santiago as my brother, a fellow disciple, and that connects me with the artists and the people and the culture on the way. Everything opens up when you are looking for one thing, just like in music when you're listening for the bass line. You actually studied medieval history at college. Are you, like me, fascinated with the history of the Camino? Yes. To me, the history is the most interesting part. I was blessed to have an esteemed medievalist in my undergraduate years named Caroline Bynum, who ultimately won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her historical research. She taught me, along with all her students, how to look at history from several perspectives, economic, social, political, theological, to reveal the scope. My art history teacher, Constantine Christofides, loved church architecture and photography. He gave me a love of cathedrals and church art and gave me tools to understand what I was seeing when I saw a building. It's really because of him, Professor Bynum, 
and my other profs at University of Washington that I feel at home in the historic side of guidebook writing. Your books include Walking the Way of St. Francis from Florence to Assisi and Rome, Walking the Camino de Santiago, the Camino Frances, a three-part series on Walking the Via Francigena, and Walking and Cycling the California Missions Trail from Sonoma to San Diego. Tell us about the process of compiling and writing guidebooks. It's a blast, and I hardly ever walk anymore without a part of my brain thinking about how I would describe the trail or an intersection or an optional route. I always start by making certain I have never read another guidebook about the route. Once I read a new guidebook about one of my itineraries and noticed some striking similarities with my own guidebook. I talked to the author and asked him how he had researched his book. He said he read every guidebook he could get his hands on and then did the walk and wrote his own. In his book, there was no attribution to me or any of the other guidebook writers he had read. And as I looked closely at his work, I realized he had made a lot of the same mistakes and assumptions I had made and was anxious to correct. To avoid that, when I write a guidebook, I start from scratch. I want to experience the walk as a total novice, with no assumptions and no interpretations from other writers. So the first step is walking it with an open mind. The process goes like this. As I walk, I record my GPX tracks on my smartphone, which I also use for dictation of my walking notes. I keep a small, mirrorless camera for photographs, as well as using the camera on my phone. Every day I will generate about 2,000 words of writing and two to 300 photographs, not to mention an unedited GPX file. When I get home, I sort the photographs, edit the tracks, and edit the walking descriptions into as close to 600 words per stage as I can get. Then I research information about villages, towns, and cities, and create the place descriptions. I then research accommodations, put all the data and text together, and write an introduction. After I gather the photographs and turn the tracks into maps and elevation profiles, I'm ready to send my submission to the publisher. It takes no less than about nine months to write a guidebook, which then is like having a baby. The first edition is followed by updates every year or two, so I have six babies I'm nurturing right now. Does writing and compiling the guidebooks impact your ability to simply relax and enjoy the pilgrimage? I need a couple of hours every night to sort through my notes and photographs, so that keeps me out of trouble. As far as the walking itself, it's become so much a part of how I walk that it's unusual to do it any other way. I feel like it deepens the experience rather than adding stress. I'm looking for things that others will appreciate too and working on how to communicate the experience so others will feel prepared and ready to appreciate. Tell us about Pilgrim Paths. Pilgrim Paths is my boutique family travel company that's become a surprise success. It began for two reasons. First, a friend asked me to guide a walk on the Via di Francesco. I was a terrible guide. There was just too much to manage, as well as managing expectations of a group of travelers. Even so, I realized that I loved pulling people together to experience group pilgrimage walks, in particular on smaller caminos like the Via di Francesco, where a person might not see many other pilgrims. 
The second thing is that I had asked my sister Rocky to help research the 1,000 accommodations on the Camino Francais for my Camino guidebook. She's trained as a Spanish-English interpreter and has a background in human service. I realized that as a result of her research, she suddenly knew as much about accommodations on the Camino as almost anyone in the world. So I included her in my company, and she's responsible for our concierge service, where we tailor make accommodation packages for pilgrims. I lead the group travel part of our company. In 2023, we arranged guided or self-guided Caminos for around 175 people, which is double our volume from last year. We expect we'll double again in 2024, so we've hired three part-time staff to help. Now my wife is on board as our bookkeeper. My son is on board as our communications specialist. We have another staffer who makes bookings for us, and another one of my sisters gives us marketing advice. Everyone in my extended family seems to want to help, and it's really fun to feel the exciting growth of this surprise effort. If I'm thinking of walking a Camino, maybe listening to this podcast for inspiration or guidance, why would I consider a guided Camino as opposed to walking my own Camino? Of course, we offer both self-guided and professionally guided Caminos. The Camino Fran says is a great example of a walk where there's really no need for a guide or for an intentionally gathered group. The walk is self-explanatory pretty much, and a person is seldom really alone. However, on our French, Italian, and Swiss walks, a pilgrim will often be walking alone. In those settings, it's great to have a ready-made group so you're not by yourself every day and every night. But there's another aspect of it, too. When I finally walked with an actual professional hiking guide, I discovered whole layers of information I had been missing. I really didn't know as much about the local culture as I thought I did, I'm not a plant person, so I didn't know much about the flowers or trees or shrubs. I didn't know what was just over the hill or what a village is known for locally or why there is a pine forest here rather than a deciduous forest. This is why our French, Swiss, and Italian walks all have professional guides. People learn so much listening to an actual local expert. It's huge. When the walk is done, they have a much deeper understanding of what they've seen than someone who's just wandered through following the yellow arrows without much sense of the depth of what's there. There are so many different ways to walk a Camino or bike a Camino. How will I know what is the right Camino for me? If a person is interested in getting their feet wet, I feel it's good to begin with a well-serviced Camino that has a good tradition behind it. The top of the list is the Camino Francais, and after that is the Camino Portuguese from Porto. I feel if you start on a quiet Camino, you might miss the traditions, the community of pilgrims, the quantity of infrastructure, even as you're dealing with your first experience of the hardships of long-distance walking. If you can walk long distances and you enjoy it, it's time to branch out. For me, it was the Camino Frances, followed by the Via de la Plata, and then the Camino del Norte. After that, I repeated the Frances and then branched into the Italian walks. 
I love the walks in Spain, but to focus on them means missing the rewards of an international walk like the Via Francigena or a very spiritual walk like the Via di Francesco. I read your bio on your website. It says, when Sandy's not walking, he enjoys yoga, sailing, and piano. Tell us about Sandy and the piano. I grew up with a piano, a pump organ, and an electric organ in the house. So I taught myself to read music and then twiddled around on keyboards, learning chord structure and such, until I was in high school. At that point, I was recruited into a Christian rock band where I played keyboards. After seminary, which was in my early 20s, I was given a piano of my own. The church had a small electric organ. I then took formal piano lessons as well as pipe organ lessons. Since I taught myself without knowing how to do it right, my keyboard touch was never good enough for making great piano music. I've given pipe organ recitals, and I consider myself the most nervous musician I know. Before my speech impairment, I used to say I would rather speak in front of 10,000 people than play piano in front of 10. And you're currently living on the Via Francigena. Where and why? Yep. I walked through Lucca, Italy in 2016, and as I was having a cup of tea in Piazza San Frediano, I fell in love with it. I was pastor of a downtown church in Seattle and never really like modern cities where the cars rule everything. Many European cities have pedestrianized center cities, and as I walked Caminos, I came to really love them. These urban spaces where people come first instead of cars. Something unique about Lucca is that its, its Renaissance-era fortification walls are still intact. The walls surround the center city, and in turn, the walls are surrounded by a vast, grassy greenbelt. Inside the walls, most everything is at least 200 years old. The foundation of our first apartment here in Lucca was a 1900-year-old Roman amphitheater. Lucca is an important pilgrimage town on the Via Francigena, and in its own right was a pilgrimage destination thanks to a 1,300-year-old crucifix that was famous throughout Europe. I consider myself American-Italian now, with hometowns of Seattle and Lucca. Can you speak Italian? In 2014, before I wrote My Way of St. Francis guidebook, I had a month of immersion Italian in Perugia. It was great to live with an Italian family and speak only Italian for a month. I progressed to intermediate level in that month, and I've stayed there in the last nine years since. At the moment, some Italian words are uniquely hard to form in my mouth, like arrivederci, and I look for substitute words that are easier to say. My comprehension is pretty good, though, and I'm still in class, conjugating verbs and learning vocabulary. I love Italian. It's my fifth foreign language, and I enjoy studying it. Do you see many pilgrims? I see pilgrims all the time. In the hiking season in Lucca, I will see a few pilgrims every day. Some check in with me because they know my work and they know I live in Lucca. Others are trying to get hold of a guidebook or hiking poles or new boots. I keep a collection of photos of people who are walking with my books and my sister in Hawaii is making a stamp for me so I can even stamp their credentials. Let's talk about advice. You're one of the world's busiest guidebook authors. What should I make sure I take with me on the Camino? 
There are a lot of packing lists out there, so I think it's helpful to think about non-material items, like, like attitude. I would suggest taking along an attitude of curiosity rather than judgment. The idea is based on a famous Ted Lasso quotation from Walt Whitman and really gives an important lesson. On my last group walk, I overheard a conversation between one of my group members and the leader of another group. The leader said, why is your pack so small? My group member said, because we have a van moving our bags, to which the group leader said, oh, you're cheating then. My group member was crestfallen. From out of the blue, another pilgrim had chosen to judge her for how she was making her walk. Later, we learned that this same group was skipping ahead five days by train rather than walking the full distance to Rome. Our group came to the conclusion that they were the cheaters. Of course, in reality, all pilgrims are using modern conveyances to ease their journey. How many take a bus or a train or a plane to get to their starting point? Pilgrims can easily fall into the ladder-making process, where we try to place ourselves and others on some sort of hierarchy of worthiness. The most common question pilgrims ask each other is, where did you begin? The question sounds innocent, and often it is, but at its heart is a distance endurance hierarchy, where the farther you've walked, the more valid is your Camino. Sadly, it's commonplace for long-distance pilgrims to disdain pilgrims who only walk the last 100 kilometers. Instead, why not begin with a question something like, what are you discovering on your Camino? Or, what do you like most about your walk? Pilgrim community is a beloved gift, so why destroy it by bringing in our false hierarchies? It's like Jesus's parable of the widow's mite. She gave two tiny pennies, but in terms of what she had, it was more than all the fancy gifts at the temple. A 100-kilometer walker may be making a huge sacrifice to walk that 100 kilometers. Why look down on them when we long-distance walkers can spare a month or two out of the abundance of our privilege? Everyone is doing their best, so let's refrain from judging others and instead cultivate a healthy curiosity. What should I leave at home? Like everyone, I have a bunch of pet peeves about things other pilgrims have brought with them. The annoyances generally involve headlamps, scrunchy plastic bags, and smartphone alarms that go off when someone is in the bathroom. But bigger than these minor annoyances, I'd say, leave your fear at home. A certain kind of fear is helpful for keeping us safe. There's another kind of fear that keeps us from revealing our true selves to other people. The way I see it, when you meet someone on the Camino, you never know if they'll be the one you walk into Santiago with for your final day, or that you'll sit with on the bluff at Finisterre to watch your last sunset. Don't be afraid to reach out, to introduce yourself, to engage them in conversation. I believe 99.99% of other pilgrims are trustworthy, so there's no need to be afraid. Keep your personal boundaries for safety, of course, but engage with people. The best part of the Camino is the friendships. What is the most common mistake people make in preparing for the Camino? The most common mistake I see pilgrims make is to think the Camino is about walking. 
After many Caminos, I've come to believe that walking is the most superficial level of the Camino experience. Beyond the walking, there's a social aspect, of course, but there's also cultural, historical, and natural aspects of travel. In this case, traveling on foot in a foreign country. To me, the clearest example of this is when people say, you don't need a guidebook, just follow the yellow arrows. This is absolutely true if the Camino is only about walking. But the Camino is more than a long walk. It's an international, cross-cultural, historic journey full of depth if you scratch the surface. I have stood outside the Church of Santa Maria Asunta in Navarrete and watched pilgrims march right by, not knowing that one of the most spectacular works of art of the Camino is right inside and it's free the amazing golden retablo. I've asked people, did you go to the mysterious church at Unate? And they have no idea what I'm talking about. I've asked people, why did you walk alongside the highway through San Martin del Camino rather than in the countryside through Mazarif? They don't know the answer because they're just following the yellow arrows. To me, it's best to walk with your eyes open, and that means taking a good guidebook at the barest minimum and reading it each night as you contemplate the next day. The guidebook writer is a mentor who's been there and is ready to share ideas for how to get the deepest, fullest experience every day of your walk. And what have you found in your travels most pilgrims are surprised by? People are often surprised by their own accomplishment. First-time pilgrims have a sometimes unspoken nervousness about launching out on a very long walk in a foreign country. That nervousness turns into determination, which then turns into satisfaction and, and then into pride. People surprise themselves, and when you see someone complete the walk, a person who wondered if they could do such an outlandish thing, it's a beautiful sight to behold. How do you describe the Camino to people who ask about it, Sandy? Some of them already know about it and think I'm a little eccentric to have made it a regular part of my life. To the rest, I tell them it's a walk of many days that helps them sort out what's important and how to become a better person. People who've never heard of the Camino are sometimes astounded by a walk of that length and often they're intrigued enough to begin thinking about doing it themselves. Are you surprised the Camino has had such a huge impact on your life and, and your family's life? Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed in 2008 that I'd have walked so many Caminos or that I'd become a guidebook writer. There's a restless side of me that has found a home in long distance walking, so in a way it fits. I get all kinds of support from my wife for this work. She's proud of me and accepts and supports the idea that I walk for fun and for a purpose that means something to me and to others. Why do you think some of us are more inclined to be inspired pilgrims than others? Some people have the gift of being completely happy in their daily routine. Others have an itch to explore the world. I'm one of the latter, and when we scratch that itch, we find a kind of satisfaction we never thought we'd experience. It's an odd juxtaposition of finding pleasure in an ordeal. A pilgrim once told me that there are two kinds of people in the world, home people and pilgrim people. 
A home person never has much interest in what's beyond the fence of their house or the boundary of their town. Some people say the Latin word peregrinus comes from two roots, per for across and granas for field. Pilgrim people are curious about what is across the fields or the forest or the horizon or the mountain range. We explore and come back and then discover we left part of ourselves and we explore again and again. Just away from the Camino for a moment, tell us about the California Missions Trail from Sonoma to San Diego. Uh, It's quite an amazing walk or bike ride. There's a dedicated community around it in Southern California. The 800-mile span from Sonoma to San Diego is really breathtaking. I did it three times during COVID and fell in love with it. To me, the distances make it an even better bike ride than a walk. The 21 Spanish-era missions are an important part of California history. It's awesome. I can hardly wait to go back. I love talking about the Camino, and I'm sure friends and family roll their eyes when I start talking about it. Tell us how the Camino features in your fellowship the messages you deliver to your flock. Well, I'm not an active pastor anymore. I'm freshly retired, and my flock is now my social media followers and my group participants. There is so much privilege involved in walking a Camino that I didn't share it often in my sermons when I was an active pastor. People knew I did it, but since the vast majority didn't have the time, the money, the physical ability, or the appetite for it, I came to see it was a niche interest. Those who are interested in Camino lore are former pilgrims themselves. Everyone else may think it's all kind of strange. There is an immediate bond when you meet someone who's walked. It's an unspoken commonality with instant trust and affection. To non-pilgrims in my churches, I hinted about how we are all pilgrims, people who are on a journey filled with obstacles and ordeals and surprises where we have the opportunity to grow closer to each other and ultimately to God who is our final destination and hope. Okay, well it's been an extraordinary experience hearing your thoughts and insights. Tell us a Camino story. Sure. When I was walking the Camino Frances in 2011 with my sister and son, we discovered we all walked at different paces. My son met a girl on the first day, and I only saw him one time for the rest of the month. My sister walked much slower than me, so I saw her only a couple of times. As I was brushing my teeth at the famous triple-decker hostel in Vienna, I started a conversation with a German firefighter. We ended up the core of a Camino family of about 10 pilgrims. We became a tight-knit group that was inseparable for the next four weeks to Finisterre. One time we were all walking to Calzadilla de la Cuesa when a huge lightning storm passed over us and got us all completely drenched. The sun came out at the hostel that afternoon and we did yoga on the lawn and had a cannonball diving competition with a group of Korean pilgrims. Most of us didn't have swimsuits. We were just in our underwear, but nobody cared. Our group has met for a reunion almost every year since then. We've walked Caminos together and just get together to be tourists too, like this year in Lucca. One of our group is now in the final stages of becoming a Catholic priest. Another in the group became a Lutheran pastor. 
there's a medical salesperson, an acupuncturist, a stay-at-home mom, a dental hygienist, a teacher among us, as well as the firefighter and the pastor-turned-guidebook writer. They're my Camino family, and we love each other like only pilgrims can love. Let's say goodbye to Sandy's AI voice required as a result of his motor neurone disease and speak directly to Sandy. Hey, Sandy, where to from here? What does the next five to ten years look like? Well, um, about 10% of motor neurone disease is hereditary. The rest, nobody seems to quite understand the reason. And so... uh, Just for those who wonder what it is, the motor neurons in your brain and your spinal cord are the nerve cells that operate your muscles. So my brain is fine. It's just these particular muscle-oriented cells and the ones that relate to my speech are degenerating. So there's no cure for it, and there's no way that um, anybody knows for certain it can be stopped even. But I am taking some medicine. My neurologist here in Italy is uh, has prescribed this sort of an experiment. And uh, so far, the results are positive. I just had a test of the nerve function in my extremities, my arms and legs, and they're all good. So that means I can walk, I can write, I can, uh, you know, have a normal life, except I can't predict what's going to come out of my mouth and the speed that will. So I do tell people that by speaking slowly, for the first time in my life, I'm able to think before I speak. And that's a nice bit. <laughs> Congratulations on your show coming out. That's really great news. My guest this week was Sandy Brown. You can find Sandy and his guidebooks and Pilgrim Paths via sandybrownbooks.com. My quote this week was part of a series in the Sydney Morning Herald called The Art Of. This week was The Art of Pilgrimage. I'd never thought of pilgrimage as an art, but I love it. The author Brian Johnston wrote, If you head off on a holiday in a pilgrim frame of mind, you'll see a different side to sometimes stereotyped destinations. The benefits have to be earned. Of course, that's the point of pilgrimage. Sacrifice material comfort. Heave yourself up a mountain or plunge into a frigid river. You'll learn that the most satisfying travel requires not big spending, but effort. What you'll realize is that all travel is pilgrimage of sorts. All travelers go on ritualized journeys in the hope of renewing themselves. We temporarily renounce our working lives, participate in collective experiences, and celebrate our shared human history and culture. People make pilgrimages to see the Mona Lisa, eat in the world's best restaurants, visit celebrity tombs, or commune with gods. Does any of it make them better people? Only, as pilgrims will tell you, if you travel with the right attitude and count your blessings. It doesn't get any better than that. 
And it doesn't get any better than spending an hour hearing from someone as inspiring and fantastic as Sandy Brown. A very special shout out to my new Patreon sponsors this week. Thanks to Ed and Bernie and Chris. You can sponsor the podcast to keep it going and keep it free and ad free. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. It could cost you as little as the price of a cafe con leche per month. We are blessed pilgrims. Walk on. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way, somewhere.